Hey, I'm Chris. I've been a professional developer for over 20 years. I'm Creston. About the same. <laughs> Welcome to the Rubber Duck Dev Show. Uh, we are going to be talking tonight all about automated testing, because that's a thing that has come up in my job over the past few months uh, and has been a contentious point. And I am very opinionated about testing, so um, I'll be giving my opinions and and Creston will be grimacing at my opinions, and we'll we'll see how we go from there. Um, but and I should mention we haven't discussed too much. We've discussed what different topics we're talking about, but not the opinions with regard to it. So I don't know where we will align and where we will misalign. Right, because we we haven't really talked much about the about testing we've written tests and worked with tests together but we've never really talked about our thoughts about testing with each other so this should should be kind of interesting um so one of the things i wanted to start out with is um it's not really as much an issue anymore but early on when the when the um when this whole concept of test driven development came about uh tdd there was um, a lot of contention on the internet because half the people out there were calling it test-driven development and the other half were calling it test-driven design. And they were making big arguments based on that about what was a good idea. So when we say, when I say TDD, I'm talking about test-driven development because I think test-driven design is a very bad idea. You shouldn't let your tests dictate how you design your product. You should let it dictate how you develop it, but not how you design it. Well, I think some of that design also kind of, I think comes out that way because basically you have your requirements and you write the tests to the, with test-driven development, you're writing tests first. So essentially you are designing based upon those tests potentially. Like, here's a requirement, write a test. And kind of the design, some of the design comes out from that. Uh, well, okay, I, I see what you're saying. I think, though, that for me, design of the product, not design of the code, is what I'm talking about. So yeah. the, the test shouldn't dictate design of the product you're trying to create. Yeah, but essential, but... And when you say design, are you saying the ultimate design like the end user sees, or are you talking about the more like software architecture? Well, mostly end user design and product design. What, what do we want our product to do? What do we want, yeah, yeah, you know, yeah. what features should it have? Um, but also to a point, um, overall architecture, because if you let how you test dictate your architecture, that's, I think, also a bad thing. It can influence it, certainly. And and when I'm putting things together, I'm constantly thinking about how am I going to test this? Can I can I even test this? Um, or is there something else I can do that's easier to test, but still gives me the same end result? So I I think about testing a lot as I'm doing both front-end design and architectural design for a system, but I don't let the test say, 
you know, hey, you can't test this, so we have to do something completely different. So with TDD, is there like, you know, there used to be maybe it's in the 90s or something like that, or even in the 2000s, there were software, software architects. In the, if you're doing TDD, do you need software architects, do you think? Well, I, I don't think that that's really... And is that even a position anymore? Because I haven't really heard of anything like that. I haven't heard of anything like time. that either for a long time. And I, I think that's because over the past, certainly the past 10 years, more so than anything else, um, as we've moved away from desktop development, more towards web development. Um, or, or mobile development. Or right. Um, it, it, it's gotten to the point where developers need a more full stack experience than being pigeonholed into these specific areas. Now, I don't mean, I mean, there are front end developers who do, who specialize in design and user experience and stuff. And there are back end developers who specialize in coding and database management. Um, but, uh, you know, software architect and database architect. And though I, I think those, I don't think that there are teams that are so big that they need that specialized of a person in them. Yeah. I mean, I haven't seen that in a while. I mean, mostly you, you get a bunch of developers together. There may be a manager someone. And then of course you have some more senior people, but basically they kind of go off in pods and tackle, like it's kind of more of, the microservices model. If it gets the project gets too big, they break it up and say, "Okay, you take this part of the application, you take this part of the application," which is kind of like a microservices approach. Right. And you know, when I'm working on a team in the professional environment, like my current job, I've got many people working on things, but we do a lot of pair programming and. Um, and cross-pollinization of stuff so that all of us at least are aware of what's going on in all the other parts of the system. Because if I if my primary job, let's say, is database, I need to know how that fits in with the rest of the system. I can't I can't code that in isolation. I can't develop that part. So um Yeah, and I was actually doing a doing some Googling or web searching today in preparation for the show. And I actually, because of what you had in the notes, I was looking up test-driven development. And then I tried to search test-driven design and it didn't come up. It was only essentially all like the first results were all about test-driven development. Right. And, and I think that that confusion has largely died out. The only reason I brought it up is because there is still a lot of contention about whether testing is worthwhile or not, which I want to talk about really? in a minute. Yeah, there is actually. I've I got some firsthand experience. <laughs> well, well, unless I've got some unless you have no tests <laughs> and your boss is breathing down your nose, we've got to get this new feature out to you know take the market, and you know that's well, the only reason that I would see it. I I never 
see tests as not being first class parts of a system. I think testing is extraordinarily important. However, I have first-hand experience of senior developers, senior web developers telling me that testing is just window dressing. Which, I mean, my jaw hit the floor when I had a senior developer tell me that. Well, that sounds like, that's, but, that's certain UI components is how I would use that description. Oh, no, that's just window dressing. Yeah, but this was, a, this was a coder. This was a Ruby on Rails coder, this senior is, developer. This is to prevent your stuff from breaking. Right. And, you know, they, they had issues with upgrading to, they were still running old architecture because they, it took them, it, it was such a monumental task to upgrade and do all the manual testing that they had to do every time they went to try to upgrade something that they are years behind on on architecture and gems and Rails versions and Ruby versions, database. And it's, it's you know, I brought up, hey, we, we should probably get this up to, to more modern versions. And they were like, oh God, we can't do that because I said, yeah, well, because you got 9% test coverage and on this monolithic project, and I understand why you're hesitant to try to do it. But then, you know, well, testing is just window dressing, which is why you're stuck in the past 10 years. I mean, sorry, but that's just the way of it. Wow. So, so why is testing important? Let's talk about... A couple of reasons why. Well, it won't be so your stuff won't break. <laughs> right. When you go in and change something and suddenly some part over here breaks, you'll know before your customers have to experience it. Yeah. I, I, that's that's an important part. I mean, the there's certainly coding aspects to keep your code safe and to keep your customers safe. Um you know, if you've got a highly utilized product and you don't have good tests and you go and update something and it completely craps your product out and it's a product that people are depending on, you've just let your customers down. Um, and, and, you, and you didn't do a good job of protecting your customers' interests. I think there's a huge psychological benefit to testing that, that I have benefited from myself and that is, it's a, a huge stress reduction, when, especially when you have to upgrade something. Oh, well, abs yeah, absolutely. Um, it's just, it's nice knowing that, yeah, these tests may take 20 minutes to run, but I can sleep at night. <laughs> so, yeah. You know, because my 1,600 tests all, all go green. Or I have... 20 tests out of those 1,600 went red because I changed something that I had no idea would impact this completely other area. So I can go fix it before I give my company a black eye by putting it out in the world. Yeah. And, and, and it's especially important, you're right, with because if you are updating one component um, of your system, um, you could probably do manual tests in and around that. But if you're updating a, now I, I should take a step back here in a second, but if you're updating a gem, if you're updating a particular library, that could have far ramifications throughout the code base. 
So that does give you confidence. And I should mention to our uh, viewers that uh, a lot of our experiences in Ruby on Rails and Ruby. So even though we've done JavaScript and Ruby and uh, Chris, you've done, what are some of the other- A lot languages? of .NET, a lot of Pascal. Okay. And I've also started doing, uh, you know, more Elixir and things of that nature. So, yeah. So some of our experiences, once things we mentioned are colored by it, but still it's still applicable to a great, you know, sure. the general development experience. And I've spent a lot of years going through different environments too, where testing was a priority and testing was window dressing. And I can tell you just from personal experience that the, 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 my stress levels were far, far lower when I knew I had good test coverage. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and despite the fact that we were writing a lot of tests, our overall development was actually much faster. Yeah. Because here's the thing. I mean, I deal with this too, in terms of the psychology is that if I don't have good test coverage on something, then I'm going to want to manually test it out the wazoo. And that's time spent doing that where I could have been moving forward and developing more code or additional tests or going forward. You know, I have to essentially take a step back and spend time manually testing something to, verif to verify that I feel good about it before deploying something. Right. All right. So I want to talk to you about like testing priorities. All right. So we've talked a little bit about the overall testing theory and our thoughts on that. But let's talk about a little little more detailed test priority. Like, should you write tests that fail and then write code to correct them? Or should you write code and then make sure it's tested fully? Well, I think you have different people with different opinions. So like the TDD, they believe in test first, which will fail. And then you write your implementation code to make them turn green. Whereas there's others like, um, oh shoot, what's his name? David Hennemeyer Hansen, the yeah. Rails, you know. DHH, yeah. Yeah, DHH, the creator of Rails. He doesn't necessarily always 100% do that approach. He sometimes does his implementation and he does the tests afterwards. Um, to be honest, I rarely do tests first. I've done it, but... Because of the, a lot of the development, it depends if I know where my, here's the thing. It depends on, do I know where the end zone is, where the goal line is? What, what is my goal? If I know my goal and the exact implementation of what I need to do, like this very specific requirements, then I might do tests first because I know that's the destination I'm going for. So like if I'm developing and working on my own product, I might do that. Um, excuse me, let me take a step. I, I meant to say, if I've been handed requirements, then I might do the tests is, is what I'm trying to say. Right. But if I'm trying to feel through a new feature and kind of like, hmm, what should this do? And I don't know what the right result will be. I'm probably not going to write tests when I'm explore doing exploratory work, I guess. Mm -hmm. So if I like kind of work through 
and trying different iterations to see what kind of works best from a product perspective. I'm not going to do tests first with that, or at least historically I haven't. But then once I have kind of my design, I'm like, okay, what tests do I need to do to do this? At least that's what I do. What do you do? Well, I think you bring up an important distinction. It depends on the environment. So for instance, like you said, if I've got a um, design department that's handing me, um, here's, here's the features, here's the feature list, here are all the stories, then I write tests first. And in fact, I'll probably lay out most of the tests for a, for a area of the code and then go over them with the, the designers and say, is this exactly what you meant before I even start writing code? Um, and then I write code to make them pass. If you're doing like, obviously skunkworks type stuff doesn't, shouldn't be test first in most cases. Um, and possibly emergency fixes for things, but Here's, here's the problem I've run into with trying to make those determinations, in a, especially in a team environment, is that if I don't test first, there is always a rush from sales and marketing. We want it yesterday. We want it yesterday. We want it yesterday. Yeah. Yeah. If I don't test first, I'll never write the tests. Yeah, in, in those like, environments. Hey, I got it working. We want it. We want it. We want it. And they're like, "But I need to do the test." No, no, we got to get it out now. Oh, and we now need this other thing now. <laughs> right, and then and then we're caught in the the eternal struggle of putting out constant fires because we don't have tests to make sure we're not screwing something up when we develop their new feature that they want. Yeah. Uh, the, the problem is most in most cases it's really hard to. Um, to convince people outside the development team that tests are a really good idea and that time should be spent on those. And so that's kind of the constant battle that you have to, to fight, especially in a, a um, if you're like a team lead or a uh, senior programmer and you're having to interface with those other departments and those other stakeholders, that's, that's a big, I don't want to call it a battle. It should never be seen as a battle, but it's it's really hard to convince those people that this is worthwhile stuff and not just window dressing. There's the comment again, window dressing. <laughs> it just, that stuck with me so hard when I had it. I mean, those were the words he used. And I was like, what? Are you, are you serious? Um, and the other thing is you, you have to, and this comes with experience, you want to get good at determining which things need tests and which things don't. You don't normally need 100% test coverage on any product because there are a lot of things that aren't worth testing. They're so trivial that it doesn't matter. Is this button come out red or green or blue or, you know, what color is the button? Unless the color of the button signifies something and it changes, there's no reason to test something like that. So, but you can't just say never test the color of something. That, that, that is window dressing. <laughs> right. But it, they, I have been in situations where the color of something was incredibly important on that screen. And so we wanted to test it to make sure that it never got out of, out of whack. So yeah. you can't just say never test color stuff because 
could be could be that you need a test for that. It depends, and and that's the experience thing is knowing when not to bother testing something and it's not worth the time. I typically will err on the side of caution and say, if I don't know whether I should test it or not, I test it. I can always take the test out later if it's not useful. Um, and, and that kind of brings me to another point I had on here. How much testing is too much testing? Or is there such a thing? Well, there's a cost to writing tests, of course. But, but what's your opinion on that? Um, well, I don't think there is such a thing as too much testing. And here's why. Uh, the way I run my work, my testing workflow is very fast. And, and I, I'm set up where I could show that a little later if, if we want to take a look at it. But I can, I can test run a specific test and jump to the code and then run the test and then jump to the code and then run the test really, really fast. And I, I very rarely will run my entire test suite locally. That's what CICDs are for. So I'll run the test area locally, make sure I haven't screwed it up, but then send it off to the CICD and let it spend 20 or 30 minutes running the 2500 test suite right um go get a cup of coffee break for lunch let it do its thing that's what it's there for so i don't generally think that there is such a thing as too much testing there are things that aren't worth testing like i said before but i wouldn't say oh you're doing too many tests Well, I mean, well, here's something that I've been thinking about or, and I don't know if we'll get into this later, but like part of me looks at like the Rails testing and I think part of it is, I hate this, I don't know if it's a mess, if, if that's the right term, but the fact that, and what I'm getting at is that when you look at the Rails testing web page, they talk about tests for models and tests for helpers and tests for controllers and tests for views and tests, like all these different tests. And to me, you're potentially, are you, well, I'll ask as a question, are you testing too much if you have helper tests and model tests and controller tests and view tests, and particularly if they're potentially redundant? Uh, well, yeah. I, can I, you could you get by with just essentially unit tests and uh, integration tests, for example? Um, for the most part, I say I would say yes. I don't think you should redundantly test things and say, oh, well, they've got an area for controller tests. I should test all my controllers. They've got an area for model tests. I should test all my models. I, I don't think that at all. Um, so redundancy is off is obviously something you want to get out of there as much as you can. There are some times when, you know, I want to have a, a in the unit test, I want to test something. And in the feature test, I want to test the same thing because I can't really pull it out of one or the other. And the unit tests will run faster so I can do quick hit tests with the unit tests and then let my CICD run my feature stuff. 
because uh, it's going to run all the JavaScript and headless browsers and all that mess, and it takes forever. But, um, and, and that's another thing that kind of comes with experience is knowing which parts to test and not. For instance, I never write controller tests unless I'm testing a public API that I'm developing. Otherwise, I, I never write controller tests because I have never found them to be useful and non-redundant with anything else. I typically will test the models, any classes I've got, and then feature tests. Yeah, what, what I have been doing is I use column feature tests, integration tests, basically are the, the full stack tests. Right. So, you know, this is like headless browser stuff. And so I basically program the or develop tests for the happy path of testing all the features. So, for example, if you have a form builder application, well, can a user create a form, publish it, and someone can then go in and submit information through that form? That test, you know, the integration or the feature test to make sure that that happy path works good. And then I use, I'll call them unit tests, basically to test the each variation of where it's needed. So for example, testing that these values are valid, these are not. So, and I'm starting to get into or I'm starting to do this more where I'm using skeletal, like there was this term in the Ruby on Rails world talking about, uh, was it fat model skinny controllers or whatever. Mm -hmm. So basically saying, try to make your controller smaller. Well, what I've been doing, and I think some of this is talking about Poros or plain old Ruby objects, the mm -hmm. acronym for it, right. is developing my own objects or my own classes for almost every interaction other than the base Rails stuff. So basically, the controller, like it calls a pure Ruby object to do everything that I would want to do in a controller. And even in the model, a lot of methods that would be in the model are moved to these separate Ruby objects. So basically it's kind of a skinny controller, skinny model. So right. it's basically, and I'm trusting. And if you do this, the benefit of it is that if you trust like your framework knows how to handle models in it, essentially you shouldn't have to test too much of that because the model, you know, the interactions between models when you set up that this belongs to this model or this has many of this model, you know, you shouldn't have to test necessarily that from a model perspective because it's it's kind of in there. Mm -hmm. um, and maybe your feature tests will should warn you if something big like that breaks. But basically when you need all your custom code where it's not relatively simple, you use Ruby objects for that. And those you test out the wazoo with you know the public interfaces of the of those objects. Right. So that's the kind of where I've kind of been moving 
too, in terms of my testing, in terms of how I do it. So I don't have like tons of separate model tests and controller tests and, you know, things of that nature. Right. And, and I think, see, the way I do it is pretty much because the user interface is the, the interface to your product and what has to be shown to the public, I spend most of my time in the feature tests, the integration tests, to see it, if the user does this, I expect this to happen. And here's how the user is going to is going to use it or break it. Um, but what I use unit tests for typically is when I'm actually developing a class, right? Um, because they are much faster. It, it makes a much faster test cycle doing unit tests than feature tests. So I like to yeah. have the feature tests so I can test. Here's what the 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 front end is. But when I'm actually developing, most of the time I'll do unit tests. Okay, I got to develop this class that does this. Okay, it's got to do this, 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 this. All right, now let's write the test or the the code to make the test pass. And that's a really fast cycle. Um, the and this kind of gets back to what you were saying before. Kind of gets back to one of the reasons that I don't ever use controller tests is because. If you're doing things right, in my opinion, your controllers shouldn't need much testing. They shouldn't be doing hardly anything. Right. And so, it's actually a sign because it is really hard to test controllers efficiently and to test. If you have a lot of code in your controllers, it's really hard to test. But if you take all of that logic you're trying to do in controller, put it in its own method then it's very fast to do it. Right. To, to, to test all sorts of variations of it should break here, it should, you know, not not break here, right. et cetera. And the only time I that that I could justify writing controller tests is for an API where that is the public interface. So you have to make sure now, and even when I'm writing those, I'm not testing, oh, it gets this this JSON and all this stuff. I'm just testing the request response, response to make sure my endpoints right. are correct. Yeah. The the classes, the class test, the unit test comes out properly. Yep. So. All right. So next question. Mini test or RSpec? I just use RSpec. I can't remember. And it's only... It's what I started using first. I can't even think, remember why. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So I use RSpec as well. And I think that's one of the more popular. I know a lot of people use Minitest. I prefer RSpec because it's it's more descriptive and it's easier to, um, to use that as a discussion medium with non-technical stakeholders. Um, they have an easier time following uh, that layout than they do the unit test layout. Um, and it, having, I haven't used unit test for a long time, but when I started um, investigating RSpec um, and coming off a of unit test, unit test at that point was faster to run but for me, RSpec was much faster to write. 
and it made more sense to me. Um, and I've just stuck with it ever since. And it, and it helps me because it becomes good documentation. If I bring a new developer on, um, it's easy to show them our spec output and say, this is what we expect things to do. Um, I've learned systems that way and it's been, that's been a good experience. So let me ask you a question. So this is an off the cuff question. So mm -hmm. <laughs> I don't know if you'll be able to answer it easily, but when you go into a new code base you haven't seen before and you need to get an understanding of the product or the code base and you're going to take a look at the tests, what do you look for in the tests or what area of the system do you look at to getting an understanding of how the system works or, or what the tests are doing? Well, for me, the way I do it, the first thing I do is look at the database structure. How is the database laid out? What objects do they have in there? What models do they have? Because that tells me um, how, how they're wanting to store their data tells me what they're trying to get from it. So um, the easiest place for me to start is looking at their model tests, assuming they have some. Um, and, and I usually do. I usually will test my models at least to, to show this should be connected to this, this should have this limitation when you're putting in this record, you know, all that kind of stuff. That helps me kind of line up in my head, all right, I understand what data they're trying to get. And so I kind of understand what, what it is they're trying to accomplish on the front end. So um, then I start looking at their feature tests and I'll look at chunks of them, like their login process, because most websites or web apps will have some kind of login. I can look at that and find out, okay, they've got accounts that have multiple users, or it's one user per account, or, you know, how complicated are we going to get with, with user settings? Do they have roles? Do they have, you know, that all that kind of stuff. Then I'll start looking at their major section based on the based on looking at their database, then I can go look at their major feature areas around those objects I've seen in the database. So that's that's kind of how I approach learning a new system. Okay. Um, so we talked a little bit about mini test and RSpec. And one of the things I brought up is that RSpec helps me to, uh, or it seems better for me to talk to non-technical people with. But what about Cucumber? The whole point of Cucumber was being able to bridge that gap between programmerese and non-technical talk. And I used Cucumber for a long time. Have you ever used it? Yeah, and I would say it's probably the worst thing I've ever done. <laughs> or why? So I was using it with my own product that I've developed, and it just added another unnecessary layer because I wasn't communicating to anyone, hey, this is what it's going to do. I mean, to me... Just, you know, I just have to write the, you know, our spec is sufficient. 
you know, to do the testing. And that's right. just adds another layer onto it. I would think you'd have to be, and here's the thing, I would think you'd have to be pretty, at least this is my take on it right now, you'd have to be a pretty large organization to want to implement that with a lot of different layers. And maybe you need to communicate approvals to say, hey, this is the code that's going to be built or, you know, something like that. Like if, if multiple people need to get an approval before it goes for coding, for example, I could see a benefit of, of that. But because of how fast development can happen now, um, I would, if you're not a huge organization, I would be more inclined to just um, work more closely with the stakeholders. Say, all right, what do you want built? And you wanted to kind of do that. I would just get the rough documents even in just notes jotted down to get an understanding and then go and you know build it and then show them, hey, is this what you're looking for? Because the turnaround, if you can do the turnaround fast with that, then there's no need to have this extra layer. Right. And I think that was a big problem I had with it. Because even like like you're talking about in a lone wolf scenario, it, it brings no benefit because you don't have exactly. anybody you need to communicate exactly. that with. Which is, and a lot of your programming is is more lone wolf type programming just from the nature of your. So yeah, for the product part. development side, the consulting that I do, you know, of course I work with sure. stakeholders and whatnot. Right, right. But when you're sitting down coding. For my own product, yeah, yeah it, it serves no purpose. Yeah. What I have found, because most of my career has been more based on team programming uh, environments. And, uh, you know, I've been a, a team lead and a lead developer and, and um having to having to deal with non-technical stakeholders and communicate with them and i thought when i got cucumber out not long after it was introduced so what 100 years ago five years ago and, I, and I we should remember. probably communicate what, what cucumber is for those people who haven't right. used ruby so basically cucumber sits on top of R spec. I, I can't remember if it can sit well, on top of a test unit. Well, essentially, it's a BDD tool. It's a right. behavior, behavioral-driven design tool. So you end up writing your tests look like when this, then this. So it, it, it you write the test basically in English. Yeah. The problem I had with it is that, and I tried to use it for a good 18 months, I ended up spending more time writing the code to support the when this, then this statements that you have to write than I did writing any of the other tests or the code to support them. So then I found out that if I, if I talk, if I use Cucumber to talk to non-stakeholders and used RSpec to talk to non-stakeholders, there was no difference in the communication success. So why burden myself with all this extra stuff? If Cucumber had just been, um, hey, you can write this in English and we'll translate it into our spec code, right? That would have been fantastic. I would I would have been all over that. But I had to spend way too much time coding Cucumber to support my yeah. environment. And yeah. it just it just became overbearing. Now I know there's a lot of look. Cucumber 
fantastic idea. It was implemented well. But in practice, it just didn't... I haven't found a scenario where it buys me enough to justify the work. So I know there are a lot of people that use it, and, and maybe they're finding it useful, and that's fine. But for me, I, I never never found it. Um, code coverage. Do you measure it? Do you care? Should you care? Well, I do measure it. I like it telling me where I might be lacking. Um, now, of course, if you're doing test-driven development, then you shouldn't have to worry about code coverage because you should be pretty much at close to 100%. But I'm not, I don't do TDD, you know, 100% of the time, of course, or anywhere near there. At least for my own, at least for the, like my own product, mm -hmm. I'm more conscious of doing it, working with, you know, other code bases or whatnot, because that's just kind of the expectation. Um, yeah, so basically I like running it and it telling me kind of, are there any, are there any areas that are not tested or tested insufficiently? That's that's what I like it for. Right. Well, I will say so that what, even, what's your opinion? Even with TDD, and I I do mostly TDD. Even with that, I run test coverage pretty regularly because I will forget to test some aspect of the code. I'm writing through code to to do this test, and I sometimes my brain will kind of get ahead of the tests and I'll say, oh, it's going to need to do this. So I put it in there. And then the test coverage says, hey, you didn't test these couple of lines of code here. And I'm like, uh, duh. So it, it, even with TDD, um, you know, it, because we're human and not machines, we'll miss some tests sometimes. Um, Seriously, and even if you're, you know, you're trying to follow TDD, you kind of, I don't want to say fall off the wagon, but things slip through. Sure. Yeah. Okay. And I'll, you know, cause I'll, I'll start while I'm coding, my brain will start thinking, Hey, this and Hey, this and Hey, this, and I'll don't limit it to this. You need to put this thing in here. And then that doesn't get tested because <clears throat> I didn't lay out those tests initially, but which may or not may not be a problem because there are some things that are so trivial. They're not worth testing. Fine. Um, but I like to have that the code coverage and I use simple cov. That's my favorite one. Um, but I like to have that code coverage there just as a safety net to say, Hey, you forgot to test something here. And that gets me to think about the code and the product and say, well, should I even have this here? Is this right? You know, yep. if I didn't write a test for it, maybe I shouldn't have done it. So. All right, so I think it is time to move on to some database talk. Uh, so the database part of testing, fixtures or dynamic data? Hmm. Now in the context of Ruby on Rails, which is where we both do most of our development now, this is kind of a big 
deal. And there are a lot of implications to both methods. So what is your preference? Uh, basically dynamic data because, and some of that is due to history. So for example, when I started doing more testing in earnest, fixtures were kind of given a bad stigma and you know, they were saying, oh, we'd make your tests brittle, which I still think they do to a certain extent. Um, so basically I've just been doing dynamic data. Like, but today when I look at fixtures, I still think they make things more brittle. And I actually think it's a little bit of an, for programmers to rely on fixture seems like a little bit of an anti-pattern type thing because wouldn't you want to code to dynamically create your data for your tests? I don't know. One would think. Now, the, the flip the, side the of that. Advantage, the advantage, in my opinion, with fixtures is that it may give you a little bit more performance. Right, and that's what I was going to say. Fi fixtures typically, in most cases, are going to be more performant than than having to create having to put records in and then take them out and then put records in and then take them out. So yes. However, every time I've tried to use them and it's been a long time since I've tried to use them because I had such bad experiences, but that's where I started was fixtures. And every time I tried to use them, I spent more time trying to update and fix my fixtures than I did writing my actual tests. And it got to the point where, um, with things like factory bot and and other generation tools and of course database cleaner that would let you um put things in transactions and and you know those those types of things that the performance difference wasn't enough to justify the the problems and the maintenance hassles of fixtures yeah. so and and i think just to communicate to people who haven't used Ruby and Rails, fixtures are basically you put static data in the database or you read in static data so it's in the database versus, and then you kind of rely upon that data being there for you to run your test as opposed to dynamically creating the data each time. Right. Is that, is that yeah, is that a good sense? Yeah, okay. Yeah, yeah so, they, so they're called fixtures in Rails, but I'm sure other it's basically putting in more static data in the database. I'm sure there's other frameworks that that do it differently. Right. Or and, they do the same thing, but call it something different. And there are certain situations where I think fixtures are actually a good thing. For instance, in some cases, testing APIs with fixtures is, I think, a reasonable thing to do. Because once you create an API, you're not going to change it that often. Um, and so getting the, the uh, fixtures are still, in most cases, better performing than data. And if I have just have fixtures there and I've got my API tests, I can ramp through them real fast. And in most cases, the API tests don't need a lot of changing data. So I'm not saying that's always good for APIs but that's a place where I can think where I've actually used fixtures for testing because there was no real reason in that scenario to use dynamic data. Um, I mean, I never used fixtures because I'm just like, kind of like once I've, I'm on something, I just kind of use the same hammer on the all the nails. Right. 
And I, it, for me, it's very rare that I come across a situation where I'll even consider fixtures. APIs are the only ones that I could think of that I've even looked at it for a long time. Um, and the thing about it is, is that like if you have I think what will get you, so, you know, so it sounds like the main reason we've said fixtures is a way to go is due to speed. But probably what's more important for, for speed is to not put a lot of your custom code in your models or your controllers and keep them in separate objects that because then if you have separate objects, you don't have to necessarily, that depends on how you structure them and what they do, you don't necessarily have to persist data to the database. Right. So then you're gonna have blazing, you can have blazingly fast tests for testing all of your independent Ruby objects. Right. Or classes or you know whatever you wanna call them. Yep, for sure. Because if you have a bunch of code in your controllers and in your models, then it kind of is inextricably tied to be able to commit things to the database and read back things from the database and, and things of that nature. And that's just going to slow, you know, your testing. Right. So, yeah, I think we're both pretty much agreed that fixtures are just, in almost all cases, bad news. <laughs> just just don't use them. But it's, it's, and it costs benefit analysis in our experience, the benefits don't outweigh the costs. Yeah, to put it another way, they suck. So, so, all right, so what about something like Database Cleaner? Now, so Database Cleaner in, in Rails, it's a gem that will, after each test, and there's different settings, but essentially it lets you put data in, and then after each test, it gets rid of that data. So that your next test, you've got a fresh database to start with, and you're not suffering from old data gumming up your next test. Uh, because one of the tenets of tests is it, it should never matter which order they're run in. If it does, you've got to look at how you're writing your tests. So, at least in my opinion. Um, so is are things like that a good idea? Or should you be doing that stuff manually? Or should you even worry about it? Should you build your tests in such a way to make them faster that one of the tests can insert the base information and then the others can just operate on that down the test queue? Well, I mean, I well, I guess my opinion is it's kind of up to how you want to handle it. I mean, because you could do it man. I mean, like, Database Cleaner is a library and it does an important thing. If you want to roll your own and not rely upon a gem to do it, you know, you could do that. Um, it, and so it, you, it either does, you know, truncation after the fact, or it does, it starts a transaction before it does things. So it kind of, if you wanted to do that yourself and, you know, that's totally upon you. I've even seen someone, what did they do? I think they, I read an article that they are using Go. <clears throat> and Postgres has the concept of templates when creating databases. Mm -hmm. So what they did is they set up a 
template database, and presumably it had a, a fixtures equivalent in it. So all the a lot of the test data that needed to be run for each test was in there. And prior to running each test, they actually cloned or created a new database from the template. That seems awfully heavy to me, but that's another scenario of getting a clean database because you're just doing an end. It seems heavy, but essentially the point they made, well, it's just a file operation just to just copy a file essentially. Right. And, so they had a template, they copied it, ran the test, destroyed the database, created the new database, ran the test, you know, so that seems very heavy, but if it gives them speed. Well, and I can actually think of some situations I've run into where in order to appropriately test something like an issue that came up, you had to have a lot of data in the database. So you had to have huge chunks of data. And in those cases, something like that is much, I think, a much better scenario than, um, you know, writing all this data in, building up this data one one object at a time, and then getting rid of it. It's just going to take forever when you've got large amounts of data that you have to put your test against. And in that case, I, I think that's kind of a, I would kind of classify that as kind of a quasi-fixture. It's not fixtures in the traditional sense, because most of those are just written in, you know, something like the language that you're in, like Ruby or, or something like that, or they're an ASCII file or some kind of thing. This is a little more structured and has a little more, I think, control in it, or at least easier maintenance to it. So, I mean, I think in some cases, especially large data cases, that's probably a good compromise uh, between the two. Yeah, but again, going back to, you know, <clears throat> the database cleaners and things of that nature matter less if you are predominantly like in your development, working on working on your own classes that don't need to actually touch the database. It just basically you give it your parameters as input and you expect a particular output mm -hmm. and you can test all sorts of variations and in hopefully not too many cases, you're actually sending stuff back and forth to the database. If you do, that'll, there'll be, you know, of course, a little bit of performance hit. But if you're the more you're able to do your code in your own classes, hopefully the less you're having to write to the database. Right. Okay. So I want to take a look at um, one of the gems I really like. I'm going to highlight one of these gems here. It is called Ruby Critic. So this gem, it, while it has a lot to do with testing, it's not just testing, um, but it is, um, it's kind of a, a code climate type thing. In fact, on the wiki, the, the creator of this actually talk, talks about creating a poor man's code climate out of this. Uh, but what it does is it it does a lot of stuff with like um, churn and complexity and um, grades your individual code uh, files, uh, but it will also include the code coverage and stuff. This actually runs a lot 
of different utilities. And you can run it from the command line, um, or you can make it part of your CICD, which I have done. Uh, so that it's always spitting out a report. And then if the, um, I actually had one set up where if it, um, if it got a, a score uh, below a B, it would email us and report things out and let us know, hey, you need to take a look at something, you've, you've dorked it up. Um, but one of the things I like about this is in the code, um, the smells are great, but in the code thing, it'll show you code coverage, which is very relevant to testing. And when you combine that with the smells, you can get a <laughs> you can get a good indication of I'm missing tests in this area and this area smells really bad. I should go concentrate on this one this week. Um, whereas if I'm missing tests in this area, but it seems to be performing well and written well, that's a lesser um, priority for my weekly test time. Um, so it's, it's just a gem, uh, Ruby critic by Whitesmith. Um, at, at this point it was updated three months ago. They're making it, uh, compatible with Ruby three. And I have had lots of good experience with this gem. Um, it's helped me a lot. It runs reek flay and flog as well as a couple other things. And you can put your own stuff in it to a point as well. Uh, so, um, I would highly recommend Ruby Critic if you're not already using Code Climate. Even if you are, this is good for local runs. Um, so there's that. All right. So um, I think that's about all I had to talk about with tests. I mean, we've we've talked about testing for over an hour. Um, I could go yeah, on we talking could about probably it. Probably talk for another three more hours, but, or, or weeks, yeah. or months. Uh, yeah, I'm really passionate about testing, and I'm very opinionated about it too. I think TDD is the way to go. Period. Um, <clears throat> I think that um, if you don't have good test coverage, not a hundred percent test coverage, but sufficient test coverage, you're doing it wrong. You, you're just that's just not good programming practice in my opinion um so you know final remarks on tests well i mean kind of exactly what you said if you don't have tests you are doing it wrong you are not doing you know you know it's called one term into other than programming it's called software engineering if you're doing it as an engineering discipline you're making well-structured code if you don't have tests you know it's you're right you're kind of not doing it right so yeah and just remember kids tests are not window dressing <laughs> they're important uh thanks for hanging out with us hope you enjoyed it uh join us next week wednesday at 8 p.m eastern time for another episode of the rubber duck dev show i'm chris and i'm creston and we will see you next week bye Bye.